a few of you all that believe that this morning. Just a few. It's hard to follow that. It's hard to come up here and catch your breath and calm back down to where I can be thinking about what it is I'm supposed to be thinking about. But you know what's amazing is a lot of what we've already sung about this morning is so true. And it's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We'll be referring back to some of these things that we've sung about this morning. And that's what gets me excited, the way God can orchestrate this and bring it all together. If you're here for the first time in a couple of weeks, uh, we've been in a series entitled Pursuit. This idea that David was a man after God's own heart. And that word is an interesting word, that word after. Because it doesn't just mean that David was fashioned after in the likeness of God's heart. David, David was a man. David was a sinful man. David, as we saw last week, was a man that sinned greatly. And yet there was something about him that God said made him after his own heart. Because David was pursuing the heart of God. David pursued those things that God was passionate about. David pursued that God-likeness in his life and tried to let that live out through him. Yes, he had his faults. Yes, he had his failure. But as you looked at David's life as a whole, David's passion was to be passionate about those things that God was passionate about. And so we started this series talking about this idea of pursuit and being a person who's after or passionate about the heart of God and those things that God is passionate about. This will wrap up this series on pursuit this morning as we're looking at one of these other ideas, one of these other things, uh, characteristics about David that we see as being after God's own heart. Uh, Fortunately, Pastor Kenny will be back in the pulpit next Sunday, Lord willing. That's the plan right now. And you all won't have to put up with me anymore. So I'm sure attendance numbers will go back up and the start of school will have nothing to do with that, right? But... It's been a pleasure to be able to get to share with you over these last several weeks. And as we get into today, I want to look at an idea, something about David that the world is catching hold of. The the world is getting a hold of this idea and realizing that this is something important. This is a characteristic that's important. Only they they miss what it's really about. They miss what it's really about. And, And what I'm talking about this morning is gratitude. Gratitude. In getting ready for this message and researching and studying over the last couple of weeks for this, Looking at gratitude has been an interesting and rather eye-opening thing as far as what the world thinks gratitude is. In fact, one article that I ran across was simply entitled, The 34 Top TED Talks and Internet Videos About Gratitude. Now, what does that tell you if there's a list of the 34 best? This wasn't even just the top 10 or the top 20. When they're narrowing down the best, they came up with the 34 best. How many TED Talks do you think there are on gratitude? Way too many for me to go back and count all of them. I quit after I got so far. And I didn't watch all of them, but I did watch some of these top videos that they said were out there about gratitude. And what was interesting as you're watching them is this idea comes through all of them at some point. That it's not the happy person who's grateful, but it's the grateful person who's happy. Did you catch that? It's not good things happen in your life and that makes you happy. No, it's the person who is grateful for what they have and appreciates where they are that find happiness. And so there's been a lot of study about gratitude and a lot of study about what gratitude can do and how we can benefit from being gracious people. 
Gratitude is said to cause us to have better relationships with our family and bring estranged family members back together and, and to heal old wounds. Gratitude is said to strengthen marriages or strengthen work relationships and strengthen workplace environments. Gratitude is said to cause you to be a more productive person, to be a more successful person. People who are gracious people are said to have more wealth and all of these other things are touted as being benefits of gratitude. And what's interesting is when you get to the end of this article about the 34 top TED Talks on gratitude, the author comes down and simply closes with this and says he hopes that in viewing these and watching these, you've got not only a better understanding of what gratitude is, but how you too can begin to reap the benefits of a practice of gratitude. Does does that set wrong with anyone else when you hear that? How can you use being grateful to further what you want for yourself? Is there there something that doesn't ring true with that when we think of gratitude? And then the other thing that hit me is they miss it. They've missed it. Even if you could benefit by becoming a person of gratitude, you don't simply practice gratitude. Gratefulness is something that comes from within. And fortunately, as I begin to look even more and and at some of what they had to say about gratitude and other sites, not everyone out there believes that gratitude is simply something you can practice and just begin to make your own. David White was referenced a number of times in these videos and different articles I was reading. So I went to the source to see what David White said about gratitude. And I want you to listen. Now, this is is someone in the world. He says, Gratitude is not a passive response to something we've been given. Gratitude arises from paying attention, from being awake. How many of y'all are awake this morning? From being awake in the presence of everything that lives within and without us. Gratitude is not necessarily something that is shown after the event. It's a deep state of attention that shows we understand and are equal to the gifted nature of life. Starting to get real new age, isn't it? Gratitude is the understanding that millions of things come together and live together and mesh together and breathe together in order for us to take even one more breath of air. That the underlying gift of life and incarnation as a living, participating human being is a privilege. That we are miraculously part of something rather than nothing. He gets so close so many times. And yet misses it. You see, what he's saying is there's this understanding that, that if we're awake and we're alert and we'll practice being woke... If we'll practice paying attention to what's going on around us, then we'll begin to appreciate all the little things in creation that have to happen in order for us to even exist. We'll start to get thankful for the death and decay that happens to replenish the nutrients in the earth. We'll be thankful that worms eat dirt so that they can make it into something that the plants can use. We'll be thankful for those plants that then not only drink in the rain that falls and spoil our plants, but those plants grow and they take in that sunlight that gives us cancer and sunburn and all of these other things, makes us sweat. But we'll be thankful for that because these plants in doing so then can produce oxygen that we can breathe. 
And then they scrub our carbon dioxide that we exhale so that we can breathe again. But see, if we'll just pay attention to nature and creation and all the things that are going on around us that make it possible for us to have the life that we have, we'll be people of gratitude. Only it's never going to work. Because we've sung about a number of times today, creation shouldn't point us to gratitude for creation. Creation should point us to gratitude for a creator. That miraculous reference that he talks about in here. There's another psychiatrist by the name of Neil Burton who wrote a very interesting article on gratitude in Psychology Today. I was expecting much when I, when I began to look at it, but his understanding of gratitude is so, so, so very close to what gratitude really is. And he even comments and draws a distinction between the type of appreciation that David White talks about and true gratitude. Because he says, true gratitude is missing, or appreciation is missing something that you find in true gratitude. True gratitude has the added element of a sense of awe and wonder and humility. Because we realize that good things in our life come from something outside of us that's bigger than us and doesn't necessarily owe us anything. Did you catch that? Good things in our life come from something outside of us that's bigger and larger than us and doesn't owe us anything. And yet he stops short. He never makes the connection with what that is. In fact, he just attributes it to the life force and just truly being alive. But where does that life come from? See, he just misses it. The world understands that gratitude is an attitude that we should adopt. But it fails to realize the source of true gratitude. And so today, that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to do it in the same way that we've been doing it the last couple of weeks. We're going to contrast David, the man after God's own heart, and what he's seeking and what he's striving for in his life, and Saul, from whom the throne and the kingdom and the dynasty was taken and given to David. Because if David was a man after God's own heart, Saul was anything but. And so we're going to see in Saul his ingratitude attitude. And there are some things here that we need to recognize and things that we need to see. We'll be referencing the passages that we've looked at in 1 Samuel 13 and 15 when we've been talking about Saul the last couple weeks. You say, why do you keep going back there? Well, there's not really a whole lot in Scripture about Saul other than what we see there. But in those instances, we see so much about his character and about his heart that it's hard not to go to those passages. And then we'll be looking at some instances in David's life and his reign that show his heart and his attitude of gratitude. But in Saul, the first thing that we see is his sacrifice in chapter 13. If you remember, Saul was getting ready to go to war against the Philistines and he had his small army with him and they were looking out across the battlefield and across the way at the encampment of the Philistines realizing they're terribly outnumbered. But Samuel had told him to go and wait seven days and he would come and make the sacrifice. But on the seventh day when Samuel wasn't there, Saul made the sacrifice himself. It sounded very noble, but we need to understand what Saul was really doing. Saul was sacrificing for himself. He was not sacrificing for any other reason. 
Saul looked around and saw that the numbers were getting smaller because his soldiers were deserting. And in deserting him, Saul was afraid he would not secure victory. And if he did not secure victory as the new king, what would happen to the throne? Why would people follow him? And really, if they got completely devastated on the battlefield, what kingdom would he have to reign over? Saul was sacrificing to acquire something. He wanted God's blessing because he wanted success. You see, Saul was trying to manipulate God and manipulate God's blessing into his life by doing all of the right things. God desired this sacrifice. God desired the Israelites to wait on him. God desired to give them victory. But what Saul did not understand was he needed to be completely obedient to God and not try to do this himself. God is not something for us to use. He's not like a contractor that we hire to build something. Think about that relationship. You want to add an addition to your home. So you go out looking for contractors who could do the job based on recommendations from your friends or Andy's list or maybe you just go through the phone book. What, you all know what a phone book is, some of you younger folks? Maybe you just run your finger down and pick out some names, right, and just start calling them. But people come out and they talk to you about the job and they give you some quotes for the job and you pick not only just the cheapest one, but you find the one that you think is going to do the best job and do it the way you want it done. And then you hire that person. You agree upon what you're going to pay them. They agree on the scope of work. You sign a contract. You give them some money up front. They buy materials. They come to your house. They complete the job. When the job is done, you go through the punch list. Everything is just like you like it. And what happens? You pay them the balance. Do you also bake them a casserole? Their favorite cake? Do you give them a little card that says, just thanks? Just saying thanks. And there's a little gift card or gift certificate in there for something so they can take their wife out to dinner? You know, maybe if they did an exceptional job or they went above and beyond or something like that, you really want to show appreciation. Maybe you do. But you're not obligated. You don't owe that contractor your gratitude. What you owe them is the agreed-upon amount that you said you would pay for them doing the job. You hired them. You were in a contractual obligation. They have to do the job that they said they were going to do. And you pay them what you said you were going to pay them. There's no gratitude owed. There's an indebtedness until you pay the balance, but it's not gratitude. But that's what Saul was trying to do. That's the way he was using God in this situation. God, you said you wanted to do this. You said you were going to give us victory. You said you wanted me to be king. You said we were your people. You said your hand would be on us. You said you wanted sacrifice. So I'm going to perform according to the contract. And you are obligated by contract to give me success if I make this sacrifice. Only that contract did not exist anywhere except Saul's mind. And yet many times we as Christians think that we're in the same type of relationship with God. To steal a phrase from Richard Ross, he's he's the little Jesus in our pocket. We keep him down in there until we need something. And then we pull him out. And we say our prayers and we go to church and we put some money in the offering plate or we teach the Sunday school class or we agree to lead the small group or we do whatever it is that we think is going to get us what we want. And as soon as that situation is done, what do we do? Little Jesus goes back in our pocket until the next time. We're maintaining a contractor relationship with him because we think we can manipulate him into doing in our lives what we want him to do. It's no wonder many times we are not a people of gratitude because we don't owe him gratitude. 
We're his child. He's our father. He has to give us an allowance. He has to feed us. He has to provide a roof over his head, over our head. What, what kind of father would he be if he didn't? So we're not gracious people. Because there's that sense of obligation, not on our part to him, but a perceived obligation on his part to us. We said the prayer, he has to answer. We gave extra this week in the offering plate. He has to do it. He has to bless it. He has to bless my family. I put the bumper sticker on my car. He has to protect me from wrecks. What would it look like if a Christian got in a wreck? See, we're we're manipulating God to fit our need. And that's what Saul was doing with his ingratitude attitude. The other thing that we see in Saul chapter in Second Samuel or First Samuel chapter 15 is Saul's monument. If you remember in chapter 15, God had told Saul to go and completely wipe out the Amalekites. He was going to give him success, fulfilling a centuries-old prophecy that he had made. But Saul did not completely wipe them out. Saul spared their king and brought him back as a prisoner of war. And Saul did not wipe out all of the good things that God had told him to wipe out. Instead, he brought them back and only wiped out the worthless and detestable things. And what does Saul do? On his way back from battle to Gilgal... When he gets to Carmel, he goes up on the mountain and he erects a monument, and the Bible's very clear, to himself. And it doesn't just tell us that. It tells us that in a quote from someone else that inquired about Saul's whereabouts, or when Samuel inquired about Saul's whereabouts, and when Samuel was told what Saul had done, the person relaying the message said, Saul went up to Carmel and built a monument for himself. It was public knowledge who this monument was for. Because you see, Saul was confused about the source of where his success came from and his victory in battle came from. According to him, it was his accomplishment. If I do something for myself, why do I have to be grateful for your contribution? If I pull myself up by my own bootstraps, if I provide myself for my family, if I am able to send my kids to the better school, if I'm able to buy my wife a better car, if I'm able to buy us a better house in a better neighborhood, what do I have to be grateful for? Because I did that. I worked hard. I studied hard. I went back to school. I got the extra degree. I got the grades. I worked and I slaved and I found this job. I worked my way up from the bottom. What do I have to be grateful for? And that was Saul's mentality. He had accomplished this great victory. But it was really just a monument to his disobedience. The other thing we see Saul's ingratitude attitude is in his worship. If you remember, as Samuel does find Saul there in chapter 15 in Gilgal, as he approaches the camp, Saul greets him and says, I've done everything the Lord's instructed me to do. And Samuel says, then what is that sound of sheep and cattle that I hear? Weren't you supposed to have destroyed all of those? And as he pronounces God's judgment on Saul, what was Saul's one concern? He wanted Samuel to go back with him so that Saul could worship Samuel's God in front of the elders and the leaders of his people. What was Saul worried about? Was he worried about glorifying God with his worship? No, he was worried about glorifying himself. He wanted to maintain his reputation, his prestige, his glory, his honor in front of his people. Saul was not the least bit concerned about bringing God 
glory. And we see it in Saul's jealousy. As Saul loses the Spirit of God and God takes his Holy Spirit from him, Saul was prone to fits of rage. We talked last week about how that was coming from conviction. And so they brought in a young man to come and play for him. A young man by the name of David, who was an accomplished musician. He was also a very faithful young man of God, who God gave great victory over Goliath and continued to give great victory over Philistine army after Philistine army after Philistine army. So much so that when people would sing Saul's praises, they would sing even more for David. And Saul became very jealous of David. Saul would see David going in and out before the people with the troops and he would see the ticker tape parades and he would see the palm branches being laid down for David and he would see all of these things and it just filled him with rage. Now understand, he's the king of Israel. David is the general of this part of the army. If David wins and is successful in battle, Israel wins. But that wasn't enough for Saul. Twice we see Saul's own son, Jonathan, confront his father and say, why do you determine harm against David? God is blessing you and your throne because of David. But that wasn't enough for Saul. He was jealous. He was jealous. Even though God was still allowing him to sit on the throne, even though God was still giving Israel victory, it wasn't through him. It was through David. So Saul could not be grateful for what God was doing. Saul could not be grateful that God was still being lifted up and glorified because Saul didn't care. He wasn't getting the glory. And David was stealing the limelight. But what do we see with David? What do we see in the heart of the man who's after the things that God is passionate about? We see just the opposite. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, I want you to read with me. Saul has been killed in battle. David is now on the throne of Israel. He's won several victories that have brought peace to the kingdom. And he's able to focus more on things inside the kingdom. Infrastructure, building, establishing a capital, establishing a palace for himself. And So we pick up with David in chapter 7. It says, When the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Look, I am living in a cedar house, while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that is on your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, This is what the Lord says. You are, to build a house, are you to build a house for me to live in? From the time that I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not lived in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with the tabernacle tent. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever asked anyone among the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built for me a house of cedar? Now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a name for you like that of the greatest in the land. 
I will establish a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not afflict them as they have done ever since the day I ordered the judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod and the blows from others. My faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I removed from him or removed him from your way. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan spoke all these words in the entire vision to David. Now understand what David has done. David looks around at the blessings in his life. He looks around at the peace that he now reigns over. He, he looks at the kingdom that God has given him. He looks at the military successes that he's had. He looks at the wealth that he now has. He thinks about where he was and where God has brought him from. And he looks at the home in which he's dwelling and he says, how is it right that I am living here? And my Lord doesn't have a house. He still dwells in a tent. You see, David knew the source of his blessings. And God reminds him here in this message from Nathan, it's I who took you from the pastures with the sheep. It's I who took Saul out of your way. It's I who established your kingdom. It's I who gave you success. It's I who put you on the throne. David knew the source of his blessings. David knew where it was coming from. And it wasn't just after David had amassed a lot of stuff. You say, well, it's easy to be grateful once God has truly blessed you. But see, this was a pattern for David. And we see that. I'm not going to take you through all of the Psalms. We could spend all day doing this. But the highlights on a few. David praised the Lord in chapter 7, in Psalm 7, because of his righteousness and all his wonderful deeds at all times, even in adversity. And he did it with his whole heart. Even while David was running in the wilderness from Saul, he's still giving God thanks and praise for his life. Even though he was constantly looking for a way to feed himself and his troops, he's still giving God praise for providing for him. Even though he doesn't have a bed to lie in, but a rock in a cave somewhere, he's still thanking God for delivering him from the snare and the teeth of his enemy. David always understands where the very life that he enjoyed, no matter how comfortable, no matter how hard it was, he always understood where that came from. And he always gave praise and thanks to the one who provided it for him. But David didn't stop just with his praise. He begins to call Israel and consequently us to this same praise. He calls us to praise the Lord with song in Psalm 95, making a joyful noise because God is good and we are his. He tells us to give thanks for God's enduring love, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. David understood the source, not just of his blessing, but of ours. And he calls us to recognize the source of every good thing in our life. 
It's not that the plant gave up its leaves and died and decayed. It's not that the worm eats the soil and turns it into something the plants can use. It, it's not that the sun gives forth light and heat and allows the plants to make oxygen for us. It's that God created it all and put it all in place and told it exactly how to work and how to relate to each other to get a world that he created for us, where we could live in relationship with him and bring him glory and honor that only he is due because he is the source of it all. David got it. But it doesn't stop there. Look at David's response to this message in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. It says, Then David the king went in and sat in the Lord's presence and said, Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? What you have done so far was a little thing to you. God, it was nothing for you. You're the creator, ruler, sustainer of it all. It was nothing for you. For you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. God, you're not just telling me what you're going to do for me, but you are God. You are eternal. You are not bound by time. And you are completely in control. You're telling me what you're going to do, not only for me, but for my descendants in the future. He says, God, it seems like an easy thing to you. But what is he saying? Understand how awe-inspiring and wonderful and humbling it is for David to hear this. And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. What more can David say to you? In other words, here am I, the chief songwriter, the most eloquent poet in all of Israel, and I am at a loss for words. What more can I say? How can I truly express what is in my heart based on what you're telling me and what you've done, what I've seen of you so far? He says, you know your servant, Lord God. Because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. This is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you and there is no God beside you, as all we have heard confirms. And who is like your people, Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself, to make a name for himself, and to perform for them great and awesome acts, driving out nations and their gods before your people. You redeemed for yourself from Egypt. You established your people, Israel, your own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant and his house. Do as you have promised, so that your name will be exalted forever. Look at David's response to this. David not only knew his source, but David sought to glorify God. Even here in the prayer, God, please do everything that you've just said you were going to do. Not for me, but so that your name will be exalted forever. Because you're talking about stuff you're going to do far into the future. And you're saying it now. And I'm recording it. And I'm telling everyone. And I'm going to write it down so that all generations will have access to this. And then when you complete it in the future... They're going to exalt you even more. Because you had the power to not only foretell it, but to bring it about and make sure it happened. David is seeking God's glory. He's not seeking the benefit for himself. 
He'll be dead. How's he going to benefit? He's seeking God's glory in this. And David was always doing that. We saw last week, even in Psalm 51 and 32, as David is pouring out his heart to God in Psalm 51 and repenting of his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, begging God for his mercy and to take this sin from him, but also to restore him, not for David's sake, but so that he could teach all people that God is the source of mercy and redemption. He says he wants to do that. And in Psalm 32, we see this beautiful hymn that he wrote for Israel to sing. Whereby all of Israel would declare the mercy and the grace of God. And in doing so, at the end of that psalm, he's telling people, come and pray to the Lord while you still can pray to him. David is teaching other people to glorify God. It's not enough just for him to glorify God himself. He realized he can never give God all the praise and thanks and glory that he's due. He can never show enough gratitude himself. So he's now teaching other people and enlisting others to give God the glory and the praise that he's due. Because David realizes the source. He realizes his source. But David also worshiped God in truth. You say, how is that related to an attitude of gratitude? Think about it. Why do you lavish praise? Why do you lavish thanksgiving? Why do you do any of these things that we consider worship? If it's done in truth, it comes out of this understanding of what's been done for you. It has to. And David doesn't care what it looks like to others. He is going to give God every bit of thanks, every bit of praise, every bit of honor that he can, any way that he can. You remember who David's first wife was? Anyone? Michael, Saul's daughter. That's right. And if you remember... As David went and got the Ark of the Covenant and was bringing it back into Judah, something happens. The cart wobbles. One of the priests reaches out to stop the Ark, which God had said not to do. They weren't carrying it the right way to begin with. And God strikes the priest dead. And David says, that's it. We're leaving it right here. It's not going any further. But then God begins to bless the town and the house where the ark is being kept. So the priest comes to David and says, David, God God is blessing it. Let's go back and get it and bring it to where it needs to be. So they go and they get it. And when they start off on the journey, and they make six steps in the right direction and nothing happens, a huge celebration and sacrifice and praise and singing break out. Here is David realizing that God is allowing him to bring the ark home. That he gets to be a part of that. 
And understand, this was important to him. This was going to be one of the first steps. What was this temple that he wanted to build that God said he was going to allow his son now to build? What, what was it going to be for? It was going to be to house the ark. The ark had to be home or the temple was going to be worthless. This is, this is the first step in God doing this thing that he promised. David cannot believe he's getting to see it with his own eyes. God didn't tell him how it was going to happen, when it was going to happen, that he even give be a part of this. And he's allowing David to do it. And David is so grateful. David is so thankful that this is happening that he begins to praise God exuberantly. It says he strips off his kingly garment. Again, it's getting in the way. He can't praise God the way he wants. You know, hunkered down underneath the chains and the ephod and all the stuff that he's got, you know. So he's He's taking it off so he can praise God the way that he thinks he's worthy. And as they're coming into the city and this parade's coming and the procession's coming and David's there at the front singing louder than anyone and dancing harder than anyone, his wife looks out the window and sees him coming. And she has nothing but disdain for him because he doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look very regal. He's making himself look like a common person out there behaving like this. And so she confronts him when he gets home. You notice what he said? He was doing this genuinely out of a heart of gratitude because he knew the praise that God deserved for allowing this to happen. And he said he didn't care what anybody thought. In fact, he would get even more undignified than this because this is just barely scratching the surface of the gratitude that he truly had for God. See, David didn't care what anyone else thought. He was going to thank God for everything in his life. Do we worship that way? We are standing here singing that very first song and singing about all the praise for every breath, for everything that God's even given us. Are we really singing with that kind of exuberance and that kind of understanding, that kind of gratitude? That we know the source who's given it all to us. But then we see David showing gratitude, not just to God, but David shows gratitude to those around him. Do you ever stop to think about this idea of gratitude and grace and the relationship there? They come from the very same word. See, there's this idea. Gratitude is the noun. Gratitude is the noun. It's the feeling that we have, the understanding that we have. But, but how does that come out of us? What, what's the action? It's grace. See, the adjective form of gratitude is gracious. We are gracious people. When we think of being gracious people, what do we think of? We think of being warm, compassionate, kind, benevolent. Why is somebody who understands and has gratitude warm and passionate and kind and benevolent? Because the grace that they've received for which they're so grateful 
comes spilling out and splashes those around him. We see that all throughout David's life. Look at David and Abigail. David is met with cursings and revilings from Nabal. He wants to go and wipe out Nabal and his entire household. But Nabal's wife understands what a brute her husband was. And so she goes out unbeknownst to her husband and meets David on the road. And not only brings him gifts and provisions for his men, but begs him not to go through with this. And she speaks a very wise word from the Lord. She says, my husband is a jerk, but that's up to God to deal with. David, if you raise your hand against him, his blood is on your head. And I beg of you, as God's selected king, as God's anointed, do not do this thing. Because she knew what this sin of blood guilt would do. And so David listens, and he doesn't do this thing. A couple weeks later, he gets a message that Nabal has been killed by natural means. And so what does he do? He was not only thankful to Abigail on the road for her wisdom and for her provisions, and he not only thanked her then, but he goes and he takes Abigail as his wife and takes her home and provides for her. We, we see this in David and Jonathan and Mephibosheth's relationship. Jonathan was always kind to David, was always showing grace and mercy to David. Jonathan went out on a limb for David and goes and talks to Saul and finds out what Saul really has planned for David. And then, unbeknownst to his father, he gives that information to David so that David can flee and get away from Saul's murderous plan. And David does not forget this kindness. David does not forget this mercy that Jonathan showed. And so when David becomes king after Saul and Jonathan and the brothers are killed on the battlefield... David seeks out someone from Jonathan's house that he can show his gratitude toward. Someone that he can show mercy the same way that Jonathan had shown mercy to him. See, this gratitude spills out of David. It's just looking for ways to come out to those around him. We we see it whenever David goes from Ziklag as he's living amongst the Philistines on the run from Saul. He and his men go, and they're supposed to be going to war. He's going to be the personal bodyguard, head of the personal detail for the king of the Philistines. But the other Philistine leaders won't let it happen, so they send David back. While David's been gone, these Amalekites that Saul was supposed to have completely destroyed and didn't, they come in and raid Ziklag and take from David and his mighty men all their wives, all their children, all their earthly possessions, and they leave. And when David and his men come home, the city is wasted, and there's no one there. The Malachites have a couple days ahead of them already, so David and his men hunker down, and they go in hot pursuit after them. And when they finally overtake them, God gives him a complete and total victory over them. Only 400 Amalekites escape. And David not only reclaims all of the women and children and all the stuff that the Amalekites have taken, but he also has the spoils of war now from the Amalekites. He splits them up between the men who were there fighting with him and the men who had to stay behind part way to watch over all of their stuff. But David takes of his part of that, and he splits it up, and he sends it out to the leaders of some of the neighboring cities and towns. These were cities and towns who, when Saul was running from Saul, or when David was running from Saul in the wilderness, he had no place to sleep. He had nothing to eat. He had nowhere that he could hide. These were the people who were providing for David and his men who were letting him sleep in the wilderness around their town and not turning him into Saul and telling Saul where David was camping and staying. 
And David remembered their mercy and their kindness toward him. At the time, he had nothing of his own that he could give them. He was dependent on them for a place to sleep and something to eat. But now that he had material possession, what did he do? He split it up and sent it back to them, showing his gratitude for the kindness that they had shown. See, grace was just spilling out of him. David and the spoils of the Malachites, David and the men of Jabesh-Gilead, when Saul, his mortal enemy, was killed in battle, along with Jonathan and the other sons, the Philistines take Saul's head and take it back to their capital city to put it in the temple. But they take the bodies of Saul and his sons and they hang them on a wall. Trophies of war for everyone to come along and look at and mock and scorn. And the men of Jabesh Gilead find out about it. They find out where the bodies are. And under the cover of darkness at night, at the risk of their own lives, they sneak into Philistine territory and take these bodies down and bring them back home and give them a burial. So when David becomes king, he repays that kindness toward these men and their town. And make sure that all the kingdom knows about this heroic act that these men have done for his own mortal enemy. And yet David's repaying the kindness that they were showing as human beings and fellow Israelites in kindness to the man who was God's anointed. We see it with David and the new Ammonite king. When David was in his wanderings and running from Saul, he ventures into the land of the Ammonites, and the king of the Ammonites did not have to show David kindness. There was bad blood between the Israelites and the Ammonites anyway. He did not have to show David kindness, but instead, he did. And when this man dies and his son becomes king, David sends gifts and a delegation thanking him for his father's kindness to him and offering his hand of friendship in return. No, it's spurned. This young man had some pretty terrible advisors. But David makes the offer. See, this man of gratitude sees grace spilling out on those around him. Even people who don't deserve it. Even people who could do nothing for him. It just comes spilling out and splashing those around him. So what about our attitude of gratitude? What about our attitude of gratitude? Let me throw this out here, this little phrase in, in three lines. We want to talk about each of them real quick and ask ourselves some questions as we use gratitude of our litmus test of how is our heart pursuing the things of God and the things he's passionate about? People who have been extended grace, have, have we been extended grace All of us have. Whether you're a believer in this room or you're not, you've been extended grace. The very fact that you are here today, God has extended you grace. But even more than that, if you're here today and you're a believer, you're a beneficiary of the grace that God showed by not pouring out on us the full measure of wrath that our sin deserved. Instead, He came and He took our place. He took our punishment. And offered us a way back into a relationship that had been broken because of our sin. He needed nothing from us. We couldn't do anything for him. Yet out of his desire for that relationship, he extended us incredible grace. 
So if you're here today and you're not a believer, he's extended you the same grace, but even more so. Because you're here. And you have yet another opportunity to accept that grace that's been offered to you. To to take that free gift of salvation. To come into a relationship with the God who created you and sustains you and blesses you in ways you don't even realize sometimes. And he's allowed you an opportunity today to take advantage of that. That's grace. He didn't have to do that. You didn't have to wake up this morning. But God gave you that chance. He's extended grace to you. People who have been extended grace and are truly grateful for that grace. Are we truly grateful for that grace? Do do we understand just how undeserving of grace we are? Do we understand what it really cost him to offer grace to us? Do we really understand the number of times that, yes, God has allowed us to suffer consequences, but he hasn't allowed us to suffer the full measure of what we should have suffered for dumb things that we've done and mistakes we've made? Do do we understand the way that he preserved us until the time we came to faith in him? Do we truly understand from the beginning of creation, what he had to do and the way he had to work things just to get us to the point where that promised Messiah could come and make a payment for our sin. So when we begin to understand these things and we begin to come truly grateful for the grace that we've been extended, we become genuinely gracious people. Because people who have been extended grace and are truly grateful for that grace are genuinely gracious people. Are we genuinely gracious people? Not do you write thank you notes all the time and send them out when you're supposed to. Some of you all have thank you notes from your wedding 15 years ago in a box somewhere that still never got out. You were going to give it to them the next time you saw them, right? Not do we do a good job of sending thank you notes. Not not are we vocally expressive all the time about our appreciation. Not do we repay those obligations that we feel indebted to. But are we truly gracious people? Do we extend to others and treat others out of this understanding of the way God loved and treated us and the grace that he showed us? Do we look for ways to be a blessing to others? Do we just look for ways to love on people the way God wants to love on them? Any way that he can use us to do it is fine with us. We just, we just want to do it. And it's not because they've done anything to us. It's not because they've done anything for us. It's not because they deserve our gratitude. Understand, gracious people do this out of gratitude, not for what you've done, but for what he's done. See, my entire life, everything that I do is worship. And if I truly understand the grace that's been given to me, 
then everything that I do is my thank you to him. Everything. So when I show grace to someone else, when I go out of my way to be a blessing to them, it's not because I have to. It's not because they've deserved it. It's not because they've done something to indebt me, to owe them appreciation or some token of my appreciation. It's because I am so grateful to him for what he's done. I'm looking for any way to show it. And that's what David began to do in his life. As David had to flee from Jerusalem, from his son Absalom. He met enemies and allies along the way. When Absalom was dead and they decided to bring David back to the city as king, as he's making his return, it's interesting, many of those enemies and allies came to meet him on the road back to Jerusalem. And while some of them deserved punishment for their treatment of David while he was in exile, David extended grace to each and every one. Not because they deserved it, but because he was so grateful. There was so much gratitude that God was bringing him back to the throne. And in doing so, God was bringing glory to himself. Do we have that understanding in our lives? Martin Luther said that gratitude was the basic Christian attitude. Should be the basic Christian attitude. Because gratitude affects our relationship with our Lord. It it keeps us humble when we realize that He is the source of it all. And it keeps us coming to and dependent on Him. It keeps us looking at Him as the amazing, glorified King who sits on the throne. The king who's worthy of all honor and all praise. The king that I could never repay for the way he poured out of his storehouses in my life. The king that I'm seeking any way just to somehow show even a sliver of how grateful and thankful I am for him. But in doing so, it also keeps us in right relationship with those around us. Because we're treating them with grace. It becomes the attitude for which we're known. We're those gracious people who show warmth and kindness and compassion and benevolence. Not repaying evil for evil, but trying to find some way to tell God thank you by making someone else's life better and show them the love that He has not only for us, but for them too. How is our heart? How is our heart of gratitude? How are we doing about chasing after that aspect of God and reflecting it in our lives? You can only be this type of person, though, if you know that grace in your life. If you understand and have accepted the grace that was extended to you. See, it's like we talked about at the beginning. The world understands how important gratitude is. It understands what gratitude does in a life. It understands what a person of gratitude looks like. But it doesn't understand how to cultivate it. 
They're looking to nature. They're looking to creation. They're looking to the way you feel. They're looking to be introspective. They're looking for you to appreciate what's in you and around you. But never are they pointing to the one who is truly the source. Not only of everything in your life, in your very life itself, but of the gratitude that you're looking to cultivate. If you don't know him, why don't you make today the day? Why don't you come and receive that grace? Why don't you come and take advantage of that relationship that he's offering you, that forgiveness for your imperfection, your sin in your life? And make him the king that you follow, the king that you're grateful for, the king that you would do anything just trying to show even the smallest amount of gratitude toward. Make him what your life is about, and your life will be a life of gratitude. God, we do thank you for today and this opportunity to